we'll get started with our next panel. I want to thank the Cato Institute for hosting this discussion today, and obviously thank you to our panelists for agreeing to join and to share their insights today. The title of this panel is Lessons Learned from the Financial Crisis. Um, but I really think that maybe the title should be amended to also add what we should do in the future because our panelists really have some forward-looking ideas about uh, the framework and ways to approach monetary policy. This conversation is coming at a very uh, apt time. The Fed apparently just announced today that they're going to be undertaking a broad review of the strategies, tools, and communications policies they use in order to conduct monetary policy. Um, I know our panelists and their thoughts and ideas outlined here will uh, have an important voice in influencing and shaping that discussion. So let me start by introducing our panelists. Uh, first, we are going to hear from Michael Bordeaux. He is the director of the Center for Monetary and Financial History at Rutgers. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a member of the Shadow Open Market Committee. He is going to talk about the potential for digital cash and how it can solve the problem of the zero lower bound. Also, we have Joseph Gagnon. Um, I can't do the French pronunciation as well as you do, but Joseph Gagnon, and he'll be discussing the best approach to quantitative easing. Uh, Joseph is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, and he spent many years at the Federal Reserve in the Division of Monetary Affairs and in International Finance. And lastly, we are going to hear from David Beckworth. He is a senior research fellow at the Monetary Policy Program at Mercatus at George Mason University right here in Virginia. He taught at Western Kentucky University. He also worked at the Treasury Department as an international economist. He's going to discuss the merits of NGDP targeting. Uh, we will be taking questions from the audience after this, so uh, you guys can take notes and, and be ready with those. And with that, we will get started with our first speaker, Michael. How do I do this thing? Oh, oh, I get it. Okay. Talk about it. Yeah, it works. Okay. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I've been to Cato a few times over the years. First time I was here was the very first conference. I did a paper with Anna Schwartz called The Importance of Stable Money. Discussant was um, Gottfried Haveler, okay. So that, that was a long time ago, so it's nice to be back. Um, so, uh, and, I, I, and what I'm talking about isn't that far removed from what we talked about 36 years ago. So the, the central bank plays a, a key role in issuing money that serves as a stable unit of account. As I said, and the first conference that, that, that I was at was really focused on something very simple on, on how systemic and transparent frameworks could prevent high inflation. Okay, but more recently, the last few years, it's the US and other advanced countries have faced sluggish demand and persistent shortfalls in inflation. Not to say that inflation isn't gonna come back, but a key challenge that we have to think about is to ensure that monetary policy is, is systematic, transparent, and effective in mitigating adverse shocks. And I'm thinking of a possible scenario where what happens is something that's happened in most business cycle recoveries. And I once did a paper in a book edited by Vince Reinhardt that showed that 
in, in the vast majority of exits, the Fed got it wrong. So, it, you know, so there is a possibility that we're not, we may have a serious recession in the not too distant future. So what we do is we, and this is with Andy Levin, who's here, uh, we document the limitations of unconventional uh, monetary policy tools, QE and forward guidance, in mitigating the effect of lower bound. Then we formulate design principles for digital cash that could strengthen the monetary system, eliminate the ELB, and facilitate systematic, transparent, and effective monetary policy. And then we conclude with some actual things that steps that the Fed could take to establish digital currency for the US, which is what, which is what we think is a, is a good solution. So first of all, just briefly going over some of the things that have been discussed already in the previous panel, uh, the story on unconventional monetary policy. So the Fed and other central banks undertook, uh, you know, after dealing with the crisis, they uh, engaged in, in unconventional monetary policy. The one we talk about in this paper a little bit is QE3 and explicit forward guidance, okay? And so we're not gonna go into Q, QE1 and, and Operation Twist, et cetera. And, but QE3 was really intended to provide monetary stimulus when interest rates were constrained by the ELB. And it was specifically aimed at reducing the term premium on longer term yields, thereby promoting faster recovery and raising inflation to the Fed's 2% target. Well, that, there are a lot of issues with QE3. I mean, the paper goes into it in more detail, but one thing is it was pretty complex and it was pretty opaque. So the New York Fed had their survey of, of primary dealers, which, which indicated that when they launched it in September 2012, that it came as a surprise to most of these dealers. Moreover, the primary dealers and other market participants remain highly uncertain about key aspects of the QE3 program, including its size, the extent and pace of tapering, the timing of reinvestments, and the sales versus the runoff of securities. So we just have this picture, which I'm gonna just show you really fast, which shows how their, how their expectations really changed pretty dramatically when, uh, when, when this new program uh, was announced. Um, and the initial launch of QE3 had very little effect on the yield curve, which was, can be seen in the term premium on 10-year US treasuries. And that's in this figure. And uh, the taper tantrum, which is mentioned before, of spring 2012, was associated with a sharp rise in treasury yields. The New York Fed survey found that changes in perception and heightened uncertainty about the FOMC's view of appropriate monetary policy were key factors behind the tantrum. And the term premium remained at elevated levels throughout the remainder of the QE3 program. Okay. There's been a lot of literature on the effects on the macroeconomy. And basically it's found it didn't do very much. Um, the, uh, the launch of QE3 had only negligible effects on the growth of, of, of real GDP and employment over the subsequent quarters. It also had very little impact on inflation, which actually was lower in 2014 compared with its level 
in 2012. So I'm just going to show these three figures. This is real growth. And then you can see that the, the two lines show you the, the, the episode of, of QE3. This is uh, the effect on, on non-farm payrolls. Very little, very little change. And this is inflation, which really stayed pretty low, below the, below the 2% uh, target. Now, we also talk about, just briefly, other countries. Similar kinds of issues came up with the ECB, the BOJ, and they all launched these kinds of programs. And they didn't have much effect on core inflation or much on anything. So these are these three figures that I'm just going to put on the board, but we're not going to really have time to go into it because I'm really talking about the, uh, the US and the Fed. So this is the core inflation in the in Euro, Eurozone, never really got up. This is Japan. Okay. So, so the question is, what do we do about the, about, the, about the zero lower bound? Well, one argument is the argument by a few people, which is we should raise the inflation rate, inflation target to 4 or 5% that that's going to raise the average level of nominal rates. It's going to provide more rooms, room for, for cuts in response to severe shocks. But it would also bring us back to the great inflation of the early and mid-1970s. And people were pretty upset when inflation was at 4 or 5%, and it got a lot worse, complicating the plans of consumers in small firms and, and really affecting contracts. Uh, it would, it would turn the nominal anchor into a political football. In a sense, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So what we say is, why don't we do something different? Implement digital cash or central bank digital currency that that could also allow the central bank to foster true price stability. And basically, the basic ideas is to, is to, is to, is to satisfy the central bank digital currency could satisfy the three basic functions of money, medium of exchange, store of, of value, and stable unit of account. It could facilitate economic and financial transactions, and it would reduce the co cost per, ten, per transactions would be zero. We could it could provide a secure store of value, and it could bear the same rate of return as other risk-free assets. So it would get back to Milton Friedman's suggestion uh, that was mentioned earlier, paying interest on reserves and give us zero opportunity costs. And it could give us a stable unit of, of account. It could serve as a measure of real value to facilitate planning. It would give us a, a, a zero average inflation. It would get us to pr true price stability, not 2%. Okay. And some other design features, it could be legal tender, um, and it could be issued through accounts digital accounts, which we argue is more secure than through tokens, as some central banks have advocated. It could be tied in with real-time settlement, and it could be interest-bearing. And just to, just to go into this in a bit more detail, so what we advocate in this, in this paper is that you could actually provide this through, uh, through these designated accounts at financial institutions which are overseen by the central bank. This is kind of the thing, this is a, the idea that's being thought of today by the Norges Bank and, and the Rix Bank and other European central banks. So you work with the banks. This would foster competition among providers, protect the privacy of individual transactions, facilitate law enforcement, and strengthen public 
confidence. So in a sense, we see the provision of this digital cash as being similar to that of many other public goods. Water, electricity, transportation. It gets back to the fact that money is a public good and there's a strong role for the central bank to provide it in the most efficient way. Now then the question comes up, it'll probably be asked, what about paper cash? So we're not saying that we should just abolish it and go tomorrow to central bank digital currency, but we think that in fact the way the world's evolving, just look at what your kids are doing, okay, with their cell phones, is it's gonna fall into disuse, just like the VHS and the audio, audio tapes. Or think of Sweden, if you've been there lately. They won't take cash, okay. Paper cash is costly, so that banks and retailers have strong incentives to diminish its, its use. Declining acceptance by retailers then reduces the consumer's rationale for keeping cash. And the, we've seen this in, 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 in Sweden and Norway. And it could be helpful for, for vulnerable households. Okay. So, um, so the question is, how do you go about doing this? Well, in a sense, one thought we had was you could have these sort of transfer fees between digital cash and paper cash so that, so, sort of, so that low-income people would be able to keep their paper cash, and if they did want to change them, there wouldn't, be a, there wouldn't be much of a fee, but as the transactions get bigger, you could have larger, uh, larger uh, 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 transfer fees. That would curtail incentives for arbitrage between paper cash and digital cash, because that's the problem with the zero lower bound. As interest rates fall, okay, and if you try to cut interest rates below zero, then people are going to say, well, why should I, you know, why, why, why should I, 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 I hold deposits in, with which bear interest? Why don't I just hold cash? So this, is, this would try to get around this problem. That then leads to the last point that I want to talk about, which is the monetary policy framework. So if you, have the, if, if you get rid of the zero lower bound, then you don't have to target a positive inflation target. You don't have to worry about this inflation buffer. In fact, when they set up uh, inflation targeting, the original idea 15 years ago was to have price stability and price level targeting. And it's just sort of by, by accident almost that they switched, the world shifted to, to 2%. So then the central bank could give us true price stability uh, and the interest rate on digital cash could serve as the primary tool of monetary policy. And then you could respond to the kinds of adverse shocks that we had eight years ago and we may have again. That would um, enable monetary policy to be more systematic, transparent, and effective. And so we argue that you could just follow a Taylor rule, but adjust it for price level targeting. And you could just, I'm not gonna go through the, the details of this rule, but basically use the Taylor rule as a benchmark and follow a price level target and use the interest rate on central bank digital currency as your instrument. Okay, and furthermore, this could get at this whole issue of central bank independence. If, you, if paper currency is obsolete, then the central bank's not going to generate a lot of seniorage. You don't have a problem of, of turning the seniorage over to the treasury and those issues of independence. The interest rate spread between digital cash and, and T-bills will be negligible. And we'll get to a, back to a world where fiscal authorities 
are solely responsible for determining the maturity composition of government debt held by the public. And so that digital cash could insulate the central bank from political interference and fiscal pressures on the kinds of issues that we've just talked about and the kinds of points that Charlie Prosser made not too long ago about the risks of the large balance sheet. And so then the question is, how do you get there? It's the last thing we talk about. The Fed could take two key steps towards, in a sense, eliminating or really getting rid of, to a certain extent, digital cash. The two things they could do. They could establish a real-time payment system, which would allow people to, to make instantaneous and secure payments at practically zero cost. And the second thing is they could encourage narrow banks, which could offer safe and liquid accounts that would accrue roughly the same interest rate as US T-bills. And that, in a sense, could then be, lead to competition between, between you know, universal banks and would get the whole system on board. And so just talking a bit about real-time payments, so the ECB is already doing something like that right now. They call this an instant payment system. Um, and the Fed has a task force that's concluding that maybe this could help level the playing field and enhance competition. So the Fed is thinking seriously about doing this. In fact, they issued a notice that solicited public comments on RTPS. And then narrow banks, uh, you know, that, that could, you know, the, the, the idea here is that people could keep uh, their deposits in, uh, in narrow banks, have the narrow banks would have reserves at the central bank that would pay interest rate. Um, and that narrow banks could enhance competition without displacing conventional banks and that focus on, on customer relationships and raise their funds in wholesale markets. And they could operate under the same legal arrangements as other commercial banks, and they may not even need FDIC insurance. So the Fed should welcome narrow banks. Again, this goes back to Milton Friedman, goes back to Henry Simons, 1936, who thought this was a solution to the banking, pa banking pa panic problem of the Great Depression. Um, and you could also deal with the problem of, of stability and lender of last resort. Because if you cut the digital interest rate below zero, you could prevent runs from other assets into digital, into digital cash. And in fact, the, the yield curve could be steep, which would foster bank lending and rapid recovery in contrast to what's happened with the conventional tools. So just to conclude and be within uh, the time allotted to me. Um, so the global economy is, remains turbulent and the effect of lower bounds still likely to be a recurring constraint on US monetary policy. I mean, if the Fed gets to its normal rate that it's aiming for a 3% and we get a serious recession, most of the serious recessions we've had in the post-war involve cuts more than 3%. They involve 3% even down to 5%. Okay, so instead of having to worry about that, follow QE, et cetera, um, which have these problems that we've mentioned and everybody else has mentioned about being complex, opaque, and ineffectual, okay, and instead of going the route of, the, of raising the inflation target, which we, we believe is undesirable for the same reasons that the great inflation was undesirable, that digital cash 
can enhance all aspects of the monetary system and eliminate the effect of lower bound. And so we think that the Fed should take this very seriously to move in this direction. Other central banks are taking it seriously. Okay, I've been to about four or five banks at the Bank of England, the Rix Bank, Norges Bank, Andy's been to like 20 of them. They all have task force, 10 to 20 people who are thinking about how to do this. So the Fed should be moving in this direction. Thank you. Thanks, Ilan, and thanks to the organizers uh, for inviting me. Um, let's see if I can get this to work. Okay. So I'm going to start uh, with some, some basic definitions, which I think sort of set the backdrop, which to me are inspired by the original work of uh, people like Don Patinkin, Milton Friedman, and Jim Tobin. Uh, and this is, uh, I believe, uh, the sort of the shortest but most encompassing definition of what monetary policy is. We've been in a long time of, of many decades until the past 10 years where monetary policy was just short-term interest rates, short-term risk-free interest rates that the central bank controlled. But that's actually a special case. It's sort of the way Newton's theory of gravity is a special case of Einstein's relativity. Well, that was a special case of a broader monetary policy that if you go back to the original people working on this, monetary policy is uh, creation of money and when you create money, you buy assets. That's how central banks create money, they buy assets. Uh, and the goal is to push up those asset prices. And of course, since interest rates are the inverse of asset prices, that means it pushes down interest rates. Uh, fiscal policy, by the way, is selling assets, i.e. government bonds, to cut taxes or to increase uh, public spending. Now, both of these policies, of course, stimulate output and inflation. And I would argue, as I think David Beckworth will go into more detail next, that the single best measure of whether policy has been too loose or too tight is nominal GDP. If it's growing too slowly, you've been too tight. If it's growing too fast, you've been too loose. So then we come to the issue of the liquidity trap. Uh, does the liquidity trap mean monetary policy is ineffective? Well, no, not if you think about policy correctly. As long as asset supply curves slope upward, monetary policy can raise asset prices, thereby lowering rates of return on those assets. Uh, now, the existence of paper currency with zero coupon does cause a supply curve for nominal assets to become horizontal at the face value of the principal and coupons. This is also known as a zero bound on interest rates. Now, I'm not going to be nearly as radical as Mike Bordo just was, uh, and um, his and Andy's proposals have certainly a lot of merit that's worth discussing. I'm going to assume that that's not happening anytime soon. Uh, so there is a zero bound on the short-term safe nominal interest rate because of, of the existence of paper currency. However, there's no reason to, to limit monetary policy to short-term nominal assets. And that's not the, the spirit of the original models of how monetary policy works. Central bank can buy any asset in the world, should be allowed to. Long-term safe bonds can push down term premia, can risky private debt can push down risk premium, equities and real estate can push down the premiums, risk premiums on those assets. That's how we should think about monetary policy in a broadest possible sense. So what happened in the Great Recession? Well, as Janet Yellen said in the March 2009 FOMC transcript, the internal Taylor-type models of the Federal Reserve 
were calling at that point for a federal funds rate of minus 6%. Uh, the Fed had no idea how to deliver such a policy. So they launched a QE1, and in the interest of disclosure, I was involved in designing QE1 at the time and monitoring the uh, maintenance of QE1 as it went forward. Uh, and um, uh, so I had some knowledge of how the Fed was thinking. Uh, we thought at the time it might have a little more effectiveness than uh, we now think it did. We now, the best estimates now are that it was equivalent to a federal funds rate of roughly minus one and a half. And about two years later, QE2 was launched, which might have taken the Fed funds equivalent down to about minus two. But again, this was much less than even real-time models thought we needed. And in hindsight, I think we found out that the, the recession and the balance sheet uh, problems were even worse. So basically, the Fed was far too timid, uh, didn't do nearly enough, partly because uh, it couldn't really measure how much it was doing well, and partly because there was a lot of political pressure against it, and no political pressure for it, I know, uh, because at that time, I was arguing for more, uh, but no one else was, and uh, there were crickets on the other side. So, but in hindsight, I think it's pretty clear that what happened, uh, the weak recovery is not a mystery. So one lesson learned is that what you need is strong countercyclical policy to get a strong recovery. The economy does have natural collaborating forces, but they actually operate on a pretty slow horizon, especially for uh, moderate uh, disequilibrium. I mean, if unemployment had hit 50%, maybe we could bounce back to 10 relatively quickly. But getting from 10 to 5, that's a lot slower. This is when monetary and fiscal policy really can help and should have done more. I don't see any effects uh, of quantitative easing that are different from conventional monetary policy, either macroeconomic, international, distributional. Um, it was incredibly profitable so far. I think over time, I think what I would predict is that uh, QE uh, and large balance sheet going forward is going to raise the average profitability of the Federal Reserve, but at the cost of raising the volatility of the profits, and as we've talked about, sometimes there'll be losses. But the interesting thing is even that volatility is a good thing, not a bad thing, because it's going to be counter-cyclical. The Fed's going to be making huge profits in recessions and slow recoveries when actually that could be useful fiscally. And then during boom times as we're entering now, the Fed may start to make losses, but that's when we can best absorb it. So it's actually stabilizing. And of course, and as Claudio said this morning, uh, macro potential policies, absolutely essential that we deal with financial risk using those policies because they're the ones that can work. It's not even clear which direction monetary policy goes in terms of financial stability. It's just a useless policy in that regard. So I just put out a uh, policy brief with former colleague Brian Sack, uh, who was actually uh, managing uh, quantitative easing from the New York Fed's end at the time. Uh, and we uh, call it a user's guide to QE because we're pretty uh, convinced that the Fed's going to uh, uh, go back uh, into it the next time we get into recession. And by the way, there's been a lot of talk about well, whether we know QE is effective or not. Well, I cannot, uh, I'm not aware of an economic topic in empirical economics where there wasn't a overwhelming consensus derived so quickly that QE in fact does work and the estimates are really quite in a tight range. Uh, there's literally no major uh, journal article that would disagree with that. Uh, we can talk about, there was one uh, paper written in NBR earlier this year, which we can discuss, which had a, a mistake and actually doesn't quite conclude what people think it concludes. It's overwhelmingly uh, agreed, and certainly staff at the Fed believes, 
that QE does have a significant and lasting effect. Uh, when you get to zero on the Fed funds rate, you should switch your policy focus from the Fed funds rate to QE. Each 300 billion in long-term bond purchases is equivalent to a cut in the Fed funds rate of about a quarter of a percent. Uh, and you should uh, move your target for total QE asset holdings in response to economic conditions uh, and with some inertia exactly the way you used to do with the Fed funds rate and respond flexibly to the needs of the economy uh, and focusing on QE. And just as the Fed uh, FOMC projects its future Fed funds policy going out, it should also project its expected QE holdings going out to help communicate all this to the market and make it a very, uh, very uh, understandable and uh, a similar process to the conventional process. Uh, then, when exiting, I think, however, uh, we should exit starting with the funds rate and only later let QE assets run off gradually. Um, Steve Williamson mentioned this morning uh, a couple of reasons he proposed why the Fed is doing this. I, I actually disagree with him there. Uh, I would say the two reasons are that uh, there's no upward restriction on the Fed funds rate, so there's no reason not to use it if you want to tighten, unlike the downward restriction on the zero bound. And we understand it better a little bit. But also, uh, if QE purchases are going to work, and the reason they did work is because they were expected to be held for a very long time. You have to take those bonds off the market for a long time. If people think you're going to sell them tomorrow, there'll be no effect. So absolutely, you need a precedent and maintain a precedent that QE purchases are long term. So, how am I doing? We have six minutes left. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's the main point I wanted to make. Uh, so, uh, in terms of broader proposals, uh, going beyond just using QE as part of the conventional toolkit in this the way the Fed has normally operated. I do think that you know, there is some risk that even QE as we've done it could run out of steam. I think Japan, is, there is a zero bound that operates on other nominal assets. It's not just the short-term uh, treasury bills. It can also be on 10-year treasury bonds as Japan has found. At that point, uh, further QE would obviously not be effective. Uh, so uh, uh, I think we ought to both get the economy further away from the zero bound and consider other options. So I would like to see something like a nominal GDP growth target of 5%, nice round number. It's easy to explain to the public. We want your incomes to grow at a steady pace. Uh, and then if you hit the zero bound, switch to a, a GDP level target that would rise and you have to make up the lost target. That would make power policy more powerful, more credible uh, in terms of lowering expected uh, real rates and getting spending going. Uh, expand the scope of assets, say goodbye, I'll come to that in a second. And do this, do this all. I think we want a systematic policy rule, yes. Uh, my version of the rule would be uh, set policy where it needs to be to achieve your uh, nominal GDP goal over a two to three year horizon and cross-validate that with what private sector people are saying. Finally, I think it's important that the Fed have the power it needs to keep the economy on track uh, and stable. Uh, I think the first thing that could be done, the Fed is the most limited central bank that I know of. All other major central banks have the power to purchase any financial asset the Fed does not, as people have said earlier today. I think I take this idea of credit allocation very seriously and it puzzles me why people think that the, the Fed should only allocate credit to the government. Why is that the obvious thing to do? It seems like credit allocation to me. 
what seems to be more neutral would be the Fed should hold and central banks generally should hold the market basket of all assets uh, and then conduct their policy proportionally in all assets. That doesn't favor anybody or any sector. It's neutral. That seems like the natural way to go. Uh, it also gives a lot more channels through which policy can uh, affect the economy. And then finally, one drawback of this policy and any conventional monetary policy is that it boosts asset prices that benefits the old at the expense of the young. If you have saved a lot of money and are entering retirement, it boosts the value of your retirement assets. That's great for you. But if you're young and you need to save, you're getting a bad deal. You're getting a very low interest rate uh, return on your bonds or you're buying stocks at a high price. So if you don't like that sort of distributional shift, you might consider uh, expanding central bank's power to do what people call helicopter money. That is a combination of monetary policy and fiscal policy. In other words, printing money not to buy assets, but printing money to cut taxes or spend, raise spending. I would do this with very strict rules, only at the zero bound on nominal interest rates, only when you're not meeting your desired objectives, only if the Treasury Secretary approves on this, using a distribution formula that Congress would set in advance, whether it be uh, the same check to every resident, the same check to every household, or the same proportion of the previous year's income taxes, or what, whatever it may be, Congress just tells you what that is. But the amount, total amount and timing, would be set by the FOMC. And the reason is that it's the FOMC that has the greatest concentration of expertise in how to stabilize the macroeconomy. Uh, and they're the, they have that technical expertise. They're the ones that should set the, the, the uh, timing and amount for this. And under the, only these restricted, limited circumstances. And it should be backed uh, by an automatic draw on Treasury securities uh, so the Fed wouldn't have a, a negative net worth. Um, not that that really is that important. But, um, and it would sort of potentially have more stimulative effect with maybe less of this sort of uh, favoring the wealthy element that people have complained about. And I guess I'll leave it there. Well, thank you, Yolani. Thank you, Cato, for inviting me. Um, what I'm going to talk today about is lessons learned, so I'm not going to come out the gates talking about nominal GDP targeting. I'm going to frame it in the broader sense of lessons learned. And to be fair to the BIS and Claudio Barrio, who was here earlier this morning, he would say these are ideas and, and arguments he was making before the crisis. So these are lessons learned by the rest of us who, who became complacent during the Great Moderation. All right, so one of the lessons learned is household balance sheets matter. So a lot of literature written on this, Mian and Sufi, probably the most well-known, but the basic idea is that households balance sheets grew, lots of leverage. They were susceptible to um, the decline in home prices, and that led to deleveraging, which then affected uh, spending and the economy, and then real GDP went down as a result. And they, they attribute most of the Great Recession to the buildup and, and leverage of household balance sheets. Another train of thought, another lesson learned that, that seems to, again, nothing new but re-emphasized is the importance of financial crisis. So uh, we got to think more carefully and clearly about financial panics. Brunner Meyer, Gary Gordon, Ben Bernanke, and others 
have stressed the importance of the run on uh, institutional money assets that affected wholesale funding, created a broader credit crunch, and that was the primary cause of the decline in real activity. Um, so they would look to Lehman, look to the crash, and say we need to be more careful or better about that moving forward. That's the lesson learned. Some would say, well, both are important. Recent work by Gertler and Gilchrist and Aikman et al., uh, they've looked at these, both of these arguments and say, look, both of these stories were important. They try to break down by weights. I'll let you look up how, how important they find each one to be. Also, a lot of work by uh, Jorda et al., a lot of papers. And they go back and they have this macro history database. And what they find is that the advanced economies in general are becoming more leveraged, um, households in particular. And what they find is, let me just show you a picture here. This is, I'm still in a graph from them. They call this the financial hockey stick that since the 80s or so that the, the private sector and advanced economies has levered up a lot. And what that has done is two things. One, it has led to more overall stability, but when a crisis does hit, it's a much more severe one. So tell events are bigger, they're more severe, and we can look forward to that. And they also stress there's an interaction between the amount of debt, household debt and financial panic. So you need to address both of those issues. That's kind of a, a conventional wisdom takeaway, household balance sheets matter, um, and, and so do financial panics, and we grew complacent during the great moderation, so what do we do about it? Well, several suggestions. There's more than I'm gonna highlight here, but I wanna mention a few. First one is macro prudential regulation. So again, Claudio Barrio talked about this this morning. It's been stressed by the BIS, the IMF, the Financial Safety Board, um, <clears throat> and some examples of that would be counter-cyclical capital buffers, uh, CIFIs, identifying structurally or systematically important financial institutions and leverage coverage ratio and other ways where you, you, you target policy so that you're thinking about the entire financial system, not just a particular bank. You're trying to make the entire financial system resilient to shocks. And that's the focus of that. And that is not without its challenges. Some countries are more eager to adopt macroprudential regulation than others. The U.S., for example, is not as excited as some European countries. But it's something that's probably, of the suggestions I'm going to list, the one that's being done the most. Another interesting proposal that's come out of this is the adoption or promotion of state contingent debt contracts. And the idea here is that you would develop debt contracts that pay out given certain outcomes occur in the economy. And this idea has been around for a long time. There's been talk about it for uh, sovereign nations. But in the context of the recent crisis, a number of papers were written, and they looked at mortgages being adjusted based on local economic conditions. The principal, as well as you know, the payments, being tied to local housing conditions and local employment conditions. Now, we don't see these because they're costly to write, costly to enforce, costly to measure. Um, for the same reason, we don't see these very much at, at the sovereign level. There's, you, know, you can look at some things, maybe student loans that are tied to economic conditions. So this leads me to a third one. This is where I'm gonna segue back into nominal GDP targeting. Another proposal is to promote better risk sharing in the financial system through monetary policy. A series of papers written by Evan Koenig, Medallis Fed, Kevin Sheedy, London School of Economics, and Jim Bullard from the St. Louis Fed has written several on this. And what they argue, and their papers are very theoretical, not very empirical, and that's where my article comes in, my presentation comes in today. But what they show is if you can't have a state contingent debt world, a nominal GDP targeting world can mimic that. Under certain circumstances, they go and they, they model 
um, the world, and they find that the distribution of risk comes pretty close to what you would see if there were wide use of state contingent de debt contracting. Um, the last Bullard paper, the one this year, he titled it Monetary Policy for the Masses. You know, and his whole point is if you, if you actually calibrate the models according to the distribution of income and debt, we see what pops out is a nominal GDP rule in terms of sharing risk between creditors and debtors. Let me give the brief intuition. I'm not going to go into great detail. You can look at their papers. In my paper, I explain a little bit more. But the basic idea behind how you get better risk sharing through nominal GDP targeting goes as follows. First, a nominal GDP target implies countercyclical inflation. So nominal GDP is a price level times real GDP. So if you have a positive or a real GDP shock, real GDP is growing higher than expected. Well, for a given nominal GDP target, which is the product of those two, price level and real GDP, the price level has to fall. So if there's a boom under a nominal GDP target, uh, what happens then is in inflation would go down. If there is a recession, unexpected decline, non-forecasted uh, development in real GDP that's negative, inflation would go up. So during a recession, you would have uh, higher inflation. During an unexpected boom, you'd have lower inflation. And that's just by default. I want to be clear here. The Fed is just targeting nominal GDP. But because it's doing that, the price level is forced to make these, these adjustments. And they won't be expected ones if the real shock is unexpected. But if you have countercyclical inflation, it's going to imply for a given stock of fixed price nominal debt that you're going to get pro-cyclical real debt payments. And this is where the risk-sharing properties come in that's discussed in this literature. In particular, during a recession, because of the countercyclical inflation that kicks up during a recession, real debt payments from a debtor to the creditor are going to de decline so that the creditor is sharing in some of the pain. Um, so you know, the debtor and the creditor came together. They signed a contract. They didn't anticipate this, this recession. So now what we're doing is we're, we're allowing or enabling the creditor to share in some of the loss through a lower real debt payment. On the flip side, if there's an unexpected boom, so now the creditor is missing out on this windfall gain. So the creditor may have made a loan, but they didn't anticipate ex ante that there'd be these rapid gains in productivity, for example, their real return on capital is going up. So had they known ex ante, they might have charged a higher interest rate, or maybe they would have invested in equity. But they don't know ex ante because it's a shock. It's unexpected. Well, way to correct for that is to increase the real debt payments going to them during a boom. So the creditor gets some of the windfall gain. The, the debtor doesn't get all the benefit. And so what you're doing is you're taking a world with debt and making it act like one that's equity. Debtors and creditors are sharing the risk more evenly over the business cycle. And that's kind of the appeal. So you can do this through monetary policy. Monetary policy that targets nominal GDP will effectively mimic a world where you have wide use of state uh, contingent debt contracts. Now, we don't have um, any countries that do nominal GDP targeting. That's a big problem for this theory. That's why it's been theory up until now. Um, and probably will be mostly theory going forward for a while, but we're trying to get the conversation going here, as, as Joe mentioned. But I do want to give one country that might illustrate how this would, would, would show or reveal itself. So I'm going to point to Israel. And I just want to highlight, this is Israel's nominal GDP from 2008 to the present. And it looks almost like a straight line. So if I draw a little trend on there, pretty straight, right? Now, again, I want to be very clear. They're not targeting nominal GDP. This is incidental. This is what, what's 
come out of the process of how they do monetary policy there. But what this means then, again, based on what I mentioned earlier, for a given nominal GDP target, if real GDP goes up, by definition, inflation must go down and vice versa. So let's take a look. Let's go beneath the hood and see what's happening underneath. So I'm going to look now at the growth rate of, of uh, real GDP. Uh, and before I do, let me mention in Israel, the inflation target is a range between 1% and 3%. Right? So anywhere in that band is appropriate. They, on average, over the medium term, when they hit probably close to 2 but they have an inflation target range. So here's real GDP. And you can see real GDP goes down, it goes up. If you look at 2009, it got low. Now, it, the, the uh, Great Recession actually was a mild recession in Israel. And I'm going to argue in part because of what they did. So, again, given nominal GDP is relatively stable, this would imply that inflation must have gone up during this time. So I'm going to look at the GDP deflator, and you can see what happens. So GDP deflator, the growth rate, the inflation rate actually went up in 2009, and then the next year it goes down. And you kind of have this mirror image here between real GDP and GDP deflator in terms of growth rates. I want to be clear again, this is incidental. The Bank of Israel is looking actually at you know, regular measures of inflation. But this is what a nominal GDP target would look like and why it would create this counter-cyclical inflation. Also, just worth noting that in the case of Israel, if you look at that and you average the inflation rate over this period, it's 1.9%. So it's, even though there's up and downs, very flexible inflation, on average, you're getting price stability. Okay, so I want to test this, this or put a little empirics to it, and the problem is there's no country targeting it. Is that left or? Okay, so I, I have a, a workaround test, and it's based on the theory. So the, the theory implies, again, this is not what the papers show, but an implication of this theory is that countries whose nominal GDP stayed closest to the pre-crisis growth path or the expected growth path should have had a less severe financial crisis based on this understanding of the better distribution of risk. So what I do is I, I go and I, I measure for 21 advanced economies, forecast nominal GDPs. I use IMF data. You can look in the paper how I do that. I, I come up with a very um, um, a weighted measure. And, and what I want to do is to avoid what we see here. So here is an example. What you want to avoid is simple trend extrapolation. If we use Spain as an example, nominal GDP, if, if I look at a naive trend like this, I'd, I'd say, wow, you know, Spain's nominal GDP is 45% lower than, right, in 2018, it's 45% below its trend. So we want to do something that, that recognizes eventually contract, nominal debt contracts get renegotiated, expectations get. So I come up with a measure called a sticky forecast. Again, it's in the paper. For the sake of time, I'm going to fly through this. Here's the US close up. And here's the sticky nominal GDP forecast for, for the US. And again, the idea is eventually expectations adjust. So briefly, I do this for 21 countries. Um, I show the level in the paper. I show the percent difference. Um, I'm going to show you briefly here. This is the percent difference now between the forecasted or expected nominal GDP growth path between these pivotal years of the Great Recession and the Eurozone crisis occurred. And I, I, I put these up against. Uh, Six measures of, of financial market activity and then some macro measures. And this is just a first look. A first look is to say, look, is there anything systematic going on? And I look at credit growth. I look at M3 money supply. I look at stock price growth, home price growth. And there's pretty strong relationships, um, non-performing loans, the percent of gross loans, and then equity risk premium. And, and yes, Greece is a bit of an outlier here. And I, I do another exercise where I, I control for that. In most cases, it's still significant. In one case, it's not. It's, 
was premium. But in general, there's something going on there. But I want to tease out causality because this is just a correlation. So what I do, I, two things, I use a, 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 well, here's, let me go back. There's uh, the real measures. I'll let you look at those in the paper for the sake of time. But I do a panel vector autoregression. In short, it's a dynamic empirical exercise. And what this shows you is what's the effect of a, of a shock. And I, and I make my data a little bit longer to cover an 18-year period so I can get the, the ups and the downs. And what you see is the systematic response. So what happens if there's a negative nominal GDP shock? What if a, a forecast shock? And private credit growth goes down. This is a typical response. These are quarters. Not private credit growth goes down, money supply growth goes down, stock prices go down, home prices are negative persistently, non-performing loan rate goes up, equity risk premium goes up, and the macro variable. The only one that acts a little different is inflation. My, my measure has no effect on inflation. Now, this is, in theory, an exogenous shock I've identified. However, it's, it's, a, it's a VAR. I've imposed some structure on the data. So just as a further robustness check, I did a local projection with no identifications, agnostic. It also is a better test of causality because you're doing a series of regressions where you regress nominal GDP on uh, one period ahead, two period ahead, three period, all the way to 14 periods out on these measures. And you see you get a very similar picture to the panel VAR. And what this suggests is that nominal GDP is an important causal determinant. Again, this is the first look, but it does lead to um, it does affect financial stability. And again, the point here is the greater the divergence from your expected nominal GDP path, the greater the financial instability over the past decade. So in closing, stable nominal GDP does appear to promote and support financial stability. This new kind of newish literature motivating um, nominal GDP is just another feather in its cap. Um, and it implies, you know, if, if the evidence I should suggest, the target would also support financial stability. And this would just be another reason to consider. At the back of the paper, I, I kind of summarize some of the other arguments, but this is the risk-sharing view. So we can promote financial stability as a byproduct of nominal GDP targeting. questions and we'll have some microphones floating around the room, but I want to ask the panelists some of the ideas you all put forward, again, uh, very forward-looking, sort of out of the box in some cases. How long of a transition period do you see being necessary in order to turn some of these theories into reality? Okay. Um, well, I think that um, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon in this country. I think it's going to, what, what's going to happen is some other countries are thinking seriously about it and we'll have to see how it goes with them. So I think that the, that the Nordic countries are moving in that direction. Um, Sweden just announced that they're going to do something called an e-krona. Uh, Norway, I know, is moving in that direction. So it, it depends, I think, I think it's going to happen. I, um, I, I did a paper a, a year or so ago with uh, Pierre Siklos that looked at the evolution of central banking uh, for 150 years. And what we found was that, you know, a long time ago, the Bank of England was the innovator and all the other countries followed. And then for a while, the Fed was doing this and then the Bundesbank. But in the last 30 years, it's the small open economies where the good ideas come from. Okay, inflation targeting, that came right out of, out of New Zealand. 
and, and, uh, and other ideas. So I, I, see, I see this as a process that's going to be starting in some countries and taking off and moving to others. Um, and it's picking up the, just the growth of technology and the learning process associated with that. But I believe in your paper you say that, I mean, there are steps that the Fed could take if they decided to that they could implement within well, a few years. What we mean is that these are the steps you need to do to even get started. I mean, they, the, the, we're, we're way behind the curve. Okay, so if they even did these two things, then I think it could, be, it could, lead, to, it could lead to this process. Joseph, what about you? Well, I think, so I think Mike's exactly right. I think his, his ideas are the farthest from fruition, but he's exactly right. It's going to be the small open economies, and I, I hope some of them do move that way so we can see. My, my proposal, especially the, the recent thing on using QE in a very specific way, the Fed could adopt it tomorrow. Everything's in place. And frankly, in my discussions with people at the Fed, I think that they sort of, it's already sort of coloring their thinking already. So I don't, it's very close. Yeah, I think it's a ways off, but there is a growing conversation about new monetary policy regimes. As mentioned earlier today, there was a conference at Brookings where they talked about a higher inflation target, price level target, nominal GDP targeting, and there is a growing interest in this topic. Um, you mentioned there's going to be, you know, a, a, a review coming up. I, on my podcast, let me promote my podcast. If George can promote his book, I'll promote my podcast, American Musings. But I've interviewed several regional Fed presidents and they've all said they're open to it. We just have to keep the conversation growing and keep them uh, motivated. So I, I, it will take time, but I think there's growing interest in it. Great. Questions from the audience? George, I think we have to defer to you and have, let you have the first one. I mean, you know, I, I hate to rank or anything, but I am in the front row and easy to see. <laughs> uh, 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 it's actually hard for me to decide which of several questions to ask, but I'll only ask one, and I think I'll put... Uh, I'm going to put Joe Gagnon on the spot in, in the sense that, in the sense, Joe, that I, I sort of, I think I know your answer already, and that's the sense in which I'm putting you on the spot. I not, not, don't think I'll embarrass you, but you made two statements, <laughs> not on purpose anyway. Yeah, you made two statements. Uh, uh, one is that um, you believe that uh, the right uh, a procedure is to uh, resort to QA, QE sorry, when the Fed funds rate uh, hits zero. And by the way, I, I think that makes perfect sense. If you can do that in a corridor or a floor system, I'm adding a footnote to your comment. The other thing you said is that, um, that's assuming you can't go to negative risk. The other thing you said is that uh, a $300 billion QE purchase is equivalent by your calculation to federal funds rate cut of 25 basis points. So putting those two thoughts, uh, uh, claims together, and recognizing that the Fed kept the interest rate on excess reserves at 25 basis points for most of the post-crisis period, could we not say that by failing to drop it to zero, it missed an opportunity to achieve the equivalent of another 300 billion in QE? And wasn't that a mistake? Uh, Yes, uh, well, that does, certainly doesn't put me on the spot because I fully agree. I think that uh, keeping the interest on reserves at 25 basis points was a mistake, it, and my metric says it basically offset about $300 billion worth of QE. Uh, and frankly, I think that we should think seriously about whether a negative rate, a small negative rate, could actually be imposed, um, and, um, and that would buy you a bit more. So absolutely, we should do that. Uh, but uh, th these numbers sound large, 300 billion for just a small Fed funds rate cuts. Uh, but 
this is not like spending. People, people confuse, you know, a trillion-dollar QE program with a trillion-dollar tax cut. Uh, they're completely different animals. They're just not comparable. We're talking about just changing the mix of assets in the economy. Uh, and there are, you know, tens of billions of dollars of assets out there the Fed can buy, uh, many tens of billions of dollars. So, it's, it's, you know, there's plenty of scope to do it. Uh, let's go toward the back, sir. Um, if you can state your name and affiliation uh, with the beard. Which one in the back? Oh, with, with the beard, sir. You, okay. please. Um, Bert Ely, a banking consultant. This is a question for Mike with regard to the narrow bank idea. Uh, what would be the composition of assets in a narrow bank, and what would be the competitive interactions between uh, narrow banks and other commercial banks? Well, I, I think the simplest uh, a concept is that you hold, you have deposits on one side and you've got reserves on the other. So if it's a real narrow bank, you want to be 100% safe. I mean, I've just... And, and, and what it would do is it would be like a public utility. It, it's like they, they earn money on a very small spread, and it's on volume. So it would be quite different from the others, but it could compete with them because other, other banks have a retail part and a wholesale part. So the, the retail part would be competing with the, uh, with, the, um, with the narrow banks, and then they'd have to also to attract customers, they'd have to also be pretty careful about the, the portfolios that they hold in the, on, on the financial intermediation part. Um, and in the middle, please. Yeah, my question is for uh, Michael Bordeaux. So to the extent that um, central bank issued digital cash as a substitute for demand deposits, your proposal would shift funds from private commercial banks to central banks. Are you concerned at all about a decline in the effectiveness of financial intermediation? Yeah, so this is a good question. I've got, I, we, you know, we've got this question quite a bit. Um, in fact, a colleague of mine at Rutgers is, is, has been writing a paper on this, Todd Keister. Um, so what we're thinking of is that I mean, the original idea that we had, uh, Andy and I had, was that people would hold accounts at the central bank. And this would have, and then of course this raises this question immediately because if people perceive the central bank is safer than, than commercial banks, they'll shift into them, especially if there's some kind of a, a crisis. So we're thinking in terms of a public-private partnership, okay, whereby it's the banks that are the ones that people hold these digital cash you know, deposits at. And they're the ones that, 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 that pay the interest rate on excess reserves. And then they're backed 100% by reserves at the central bank. Okay, so if you did that, then you could get around that problem. If you don't do that, then there's this, this, is, this is the kind of problem that could happen. Another, another question here in the middle. And uh, please don't forget to state your name and affiliation. Uh, Carl Smith, um, Bloomberg, I guess. So two questions. David, one, uh, so the countries that do have the most stable nominal GDP growth, are there a particular set of policies that they commonly implement or tools that they're using that are allowing them to do that? 
And then, Joe, um, just what are your thoughts on, like, the sort of political concerns with allowing the Fed to have this mix of assets, the pressure that we already see from, to, for them take on municipal bonds, stuff like that? How, how do you think we handle that, those sort of issues? To answer your question, um, the, the countries that did the best on that chart I showed that had actually a positive gap are small open economies. So they have a little more flexibility. They can use, you know, the exchange rate channel monetary policy a whole lot more ably than, say, the U.S. can. I mean, maybe they flip the question around, what, what are the worst performing ones doing wrong? Well, most of them are the European countries that don't have you know, monetary policy set domestically, set by the European Central Bank. So... I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, we can't all become small open economies. Um, but what the evidence, I think, suggests, you know, that if you impose, whether because the central bank does it for you in Frankfurt or because you're nimble and flexible, if you can in some way get nominal GDP growth that is stable, it will be creating a nice byproduct of uh, financial stability. Yeah, in answer to the, I, I want to give the Fed more power, but... I also believe that um, it needs to be very tightly constrained, as I outlined. Certain conditions have to be met, certain approvals have to be granted first before they can do these extra things. If they were allowed to buy more assets, there would have to be an agreement that they're not going to buy some cronies, you know, uh, stock or equity to help some individual. It has to be on a broad-based, rule-based, uh, neutral framework. So I think it could be done. And the other thing is that I think almost no amount of, of um, daylight, sort of in inspection, intrusion, uh, release of documents is too much for the Fed. Uh, and I think, for example, the five-year waiting list on all these documents and transcripts, it could be shorter. I think, you know, uh, Chairman Bernanke and Yellen both complained vociferously about audit the Fed bills, but frankly, I think they're uh, overstating the case. I know some aspects I didn't like about those bills, but it isn't a big deal. I think um, um, whatever kind of openness is demanded should be uh, requested, should be required. I responded. Carl, I would recommend a paper by George Selgin here on flexible open market operations where he, he proposes a way where the Fed could purchase other assets beyond the narrow few that they do now in a systematic fashion. Another question, how about over on this side, uh, toward the back? You, sir. I have a question for Joe Gagnon about his, his idea that the Fed ought to produce a certain amount of everything. And how you would define that, would you, would you have the Fed buy houses? Those are real assets. If there's more intermediation in houses so that the amount of mortgages goes up but the amount of houses stays the same, do they invest more in housing broadly? If those mortgages are repackaged into securities, does that still increase the proportion of housing assets that they buy? If those are uh, recombined at different tranches, such as we observed in the last crisis, does the Fed buy a certain amount of the repackaged securities so that the more uh, intermediation there is in the housing sector, that's what determines how much housing, or should they focus on the underlying asset and skip all the financial securities and just buy houses? I, actually, I think that's a good question, and I've 
housing is the area where this making this operational is a problem or an issue. I, you could argue that it should be um, all domestic securities, uh, which would uh, reduce the total all of all, instead of all assets imaginable, it would be all assets in this broad, broad class uh, on a market weighted basis. This, these securities would include real estate investment trusts, so there'd be some real estate. Uh, but uh, whether you would go beyond that uh, may be difficult operationally. So, you know, I don't think that's critical. Uh, in principle, it would be nice, but it's a case of, you know, in practice, it may not be worth uh, any advantages. So, but the idea would be the broadest that's practical and sensible uh, and can be implemented in a very, uh, in a way that's not seen as taken over by favoritism or, you know, picking winners and losers. Questions? How about down here in the front? Chris Inglis, CPA, Fairfax County. Um, along those same lines, I don't think any purchase of any security is not going to be unbiased. I, I don't see, I don't understand how um, buying the ETFs of the, of the S&P 500 or something itself is not a bias. So, and I, you know, I don't see the government and the Federal Reserve owning and, and propping up the stock market. Is this a socialist country? Is this a capitalist country? Um, so I look at what the Bank of Japan's doing. They're doing it now. Is, is that working out for them? I think it's a complete distortion of the entire market system. And we end up with a planned economy, uh, you know, run by, you know, bureaucrats and academicians. Perhaps we should leave this to everyone. Is there inherent bias in the Fed? Well, there, there currently is. There's a bias towards government securities right now. Is that socialist? I mean, I mean, okay. Well, <laughs> I think there is a way to do this systematically. And again, I, I, maybe I should let George speak to this, but he has a proposal where you would bring the collateral to the Fed. You wouldn't have to be a primary dealer. One of the advantages of having a flexible open market operation is, you know, the primary dealer system. It got clogged up, didn't work very well during the crisis, and you need to open it. Europe, ECB has a much wider range of counterparties that it does open market operations with. It takes other assets. And so it has been done elsewhere in a successful manner, and we could maybe replicate some of that in the spirit of what Joe proposes. I, I just want to do a two-finger intervention. There was a paper that was written by Philip Kagan in the 1950s called Why Should, Why Should the Central Bank... Um, uh, by government securities and open market operations. And so what he did, he said, you could, you could, you could buy pins, you could buy bricks. There was, a, there was a paper in the 1930s by someone named Hardy that thought that the way to get out of the Great Depression was to buy bricks. And so what Kagan said was, well, if you buy government securities, the reason you do that is because it'll have the effect, it'll affect, mo most people hold them, and it, it will have the most effect on spending. So it's not just an issue of, of the distribution effects, okay, it's the effect of the macro effects, and there's a reason for why we do it, open market operations and governance series. So Joe's point is right. You don't just have to buy short-term T-bills. If they're widely held, there's a reason. If you have a widely held portfolio, there's a, there is a good macro reason to do it. And on that spirited note, I think that is all the time that we have. I want to thank our panelists, Michael, Joe, David. Thank you so much for your comments today. Thank you.